scripture reading is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, and I'll be reading from the ESV. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, praise team. Let's uh, go before the Lord once more before we look at his word. Our Father, we need your help. The thing that we need, we cannot accomplish on our own. And we need your Spirit to open our eyes, to open our ears. I pray that we would have minds to comprehend what we're about to see and hearts to do your will. Father, where we need to be pricked, where we need to be convicted, may your Spirit do just that. Where we need to be encouraged in the gospel, where our heads need to be lifted up, would your Spirit do that? Father, help us to leave this place in just a little while happy in Christ. May we see him this morning for who he is, the reigning King of kings, Lord of lords. His throne is unshakable. And we look forward to the grace that we will encounter at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So may our hearts continue to sing this morning as we look at your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Circumstances or Scripture. Circumstances or Scripture, those are our options for assessing this life. 
Just this past week, I, I had two separate conversations where both individuals that I was talking with expressed despair due to their present circumstances. Their situation is no different from yours or mine. They find themselves living in a world that is as uncertain and unstable as it has been in our lifetime. Maybe you too can identify and you too feel the weight of uncertainty, whether it be from a virus or unrest in our society or for any other number of reasons. Yesterday was July 4th, and many of us celebrated Independence Day with barbecue and fireworks. I know we did. But perhaps this year's celebration wasn't as gleeful as last year's. Maybe we've seen the the fabric of this country seemingly unravel over the last few months, and we aren't so sure that the freedoms we enjoy are as guaranteed as they seemed to be a year ago. One example that we've seen is how local governments across this nation have limited or banned corporate worship while supporting mass protest. In reading some essays on Independence Day this week, I was particularly interested in one writer's thoughts. The author explained that the 4th of July is is not formally a religious holiday. We all know that. But he went on to say that it could be used to determine if the basic Christian holidays, Christmas and Easter, are understood and commemorated as they ought to be. And how are we to understand and commemorate Christmas and Easter? We all know the basic meaning of Christmas and Easter is that Jesus is Lord. So in showing how it can complement Christmas and Easter, the the writer of this essay that I was reading asserted that the 4th of July is a celebration of the fact that there is one Lord and it's not Caesar. In the event that we are led to think Caesar is represented by a king or president, the writer argued that there is a Caesar within every sinful heart. And that Caesar is looking for a way to wield ungodly power over others. We read the headlines or hear the news that one group's gathering is banned while another's is allowed and supported. And circumstances seem to say that Caesar is in control, but Scripture says otherwise. Circumstances or Scripture, those are our options for assessing life. Here's the deal. If Jesus is Lord, and he certainly is, one of these two ways of assessing life is inferior to the other. It's often easy for the circumstances in our lives to deceive us into thinking that Jesus is not Lord, right? One of the most elementary and foundational Reasons that we as Christians gather together week after week when not interrupted by a virus is to worship God together. We all know this. In and through that worship, though, listen, we are reminding ourselves and each other that despite our present circumstances, Jesus is 
Lord. Scripture helps us assess our lives by telling us that no matter how grim things may seem, God has spoken and we need to listen. Scripture doesn't rely on our circumstances, but on the finished work of Christ. So if we're going to make accurate assessments of our lives, we must choose Scripture over circumstances. And thankfully this morning, we have a passage of Scripture that squarely focuses our attention on King Jesus. So if you're not there already, please turn with me to 1 Peter. We're still in chapter 1 and We're going to be continuing our series in 1 Peter this morning, a series that we're calling Living Hope. The Christians that Peter had written to, they knew suffering and persecution. They were familiar with uncertainty, and Peter was reminding them of the hope they had in Christ. Their salvation was secured by Jesus But they obviously needed to be reminded that their circumstances would lead them to believe that Jesus is not Lord. Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says otherwise. One of the underlying themes of 1 Peter, and especially the passage that we're looking at today, is that standard operating equipment in the Christian life is the virtue of of waiting. And Peter makes it clear that Christians must be comfortable with not having everything that we want when we want it. The idea of instant gratification that we have so easily embraced in our culture, it is a foreign concept in Scripture. Our circumstances tell us one thing. Scripture tells us another. So when your circumstances tell you everything in your world is falling apart, Scripture reminds us Jesus is holding all things together. When your circumstances tell you anxiety is acceptable and appropriate, Scripture reminds us do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When circumstances tell you to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, Scripture says to wait in hope. To wait in holiness and to wait in fear because Jesus is Lord and because Jesus is worth the wait. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at in our passage this morning. Peter gives Christians who are faithfully and hopefully waiting on God three commands and then he provides the basis for these commands. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the outline for the sermon. Point number one, wait in hope. Wait in hope. In verse 13 of chapter 1, Peter is going to instruct waiting Christians to set their hope on the return of Jesus. Point number two will be wait in holiness. Wait in holiness. In verses 14 to 16, waiting Christians are instructed to be holy. 
Point number three, wait in fear. Wait in fear. In verse 17, waiting Christians are instructed to fear God. And lastly, the, the basis that Peter gives Christians for their waiting is found in verses 18 to 21. And it is this, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus, revealing why Jesus is worth the wait. So the fourth and final point will be that Jesus is worth the wait. Again, we're going to see that in verses 18 to 21. All right, so point number one, wait in hope. Let's look again at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Depending on your translation, there might appear to be three commands in verse 13 alone. For instance, in the ESV, which we're using this morning, it looks like Peter is commanding Christians to prepare their minds, to be sober-minded, and to hope fully. But when you look at the original language, you see that the, the phrases prepare your minds or preparing your minds and be sober-minded, they modify the command to set your hope fully, or most basically, to hope fully. There are a, a few things to note here before we look at the command for Christians to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at the language that Peter uses in describing what will be necessary to obey the command to hope. The first thing he says is preparing your minds for action. Peter is literally saying, gird up the loins of your mind. And I know that sounds strange, but it brings to mind the, the gathering of the commonly worn tunic or, or robe back in those days, right? And if, if they were going to do anything active at all, they couldn't do it with it dangling around their ankles. They had to gird up their loins. They had to essentially tie their tunic into shorts, I'm reminded of God's words to Job in Job 38.3, where the Lord answers Job's questioning by telling him to dress for action like a man. In other words, Job, gird up your loins, prepare for action, because you're being called into active duty. So how do we prepare our minds for action? How, how do we gird up the loins of our mind? I had the privilege of preaching the first sermon here at Trinity of this year. First sermon of 2020. And the passage that we looked at for that sermon was Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I think we have it on the screen. You'll, you'll remember, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if we're going to prepare our minds for action or gird up the loins of our mind, the first thing we have to do is to discern what is the will of God. And we certainly don't do that by imbibing what the world is selling. 
If a political platform or a so-called social reform movement is contrary to the Word of God, we as Christians must reject it. To hope in some man-made ideology that runs counter to God's will is sinful and wicked. And again, we must reject it. Christian, how are you preparing your mind for action? How are you girding up the loins of your mind? Are you filling your mind with God's truth or with the world's false teaching? Peter's exhortation for us to prepare our minds for action, it tells us the Christian life is war and we must be ready. So how are we called to fight? First and foremost, by preparing our minds for action. Secondly, Peter says we must be sober-minded. The Christians that Peter was writing to could have been easily tempted to look at their circumstances and fly off the handle in despair, but Peter instructed his readers to be sober-minded. A sober mind is one that remembers that God is sovereign, that he's in complete control. A sober mind is one that is self-controlled and that processes its thoughts through a God-centered worldview. There are many examples of sober-minded, faithful followers of God in the Scriptures. But I want to take just a moment to look at an account in Daniel that shows us three individuals who were sober-minded. So you don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. It's Daniel chapter 3. Uh, I think we're going to have it on the screen. But uh, you'll remember King Nebuchadnezzar has set up a, a gold image on the plain of Dura. He's invited all of Babylon's leadership to come to the dedication of the image. And the people were commanded to fall down and worship the golden image when given a cue. The warning was issued that whoever did not fall down and worship would be immediately thrown into the fiery furnace. And it was brought to King Nebuchadnezzar's attention that some of his leadership were not obeying the command to worship the idol. And so we pick up in verse 13 of Daniel 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God, little g, God, who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. It takes a sober mind to stand up to the most powerful man on earth and say that you will not bow down in opposition to your God. Not many of us will be called before a world leader, but we may very well be called before our boss. We may be called out by a neighbor before other neighbors. Will we, would we respond with a sober mind like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? When thinking about some distinctives of a sober mind, I'm reminded of some advice that a college professor gave to our class on the final day of the quarter. That shows how old I am. We had quarters instead of semesters. He instructed us to think critically, but not cynically. Critically, but not cynically. And and I think about his advice often. We see that from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were critical in their articulation, but they were not cynical. In preparing for this sermon, I was forced to assess whether or not I have been exhibiting a sober mind. In light of all the news that we take in on a daily basis, it's so easy to be cynical in our thinking. More is required of us to be critical in our thinking. And in transparency, I've had to repent before the Lord. When times are good and and when there's no adversity, the life of the mind doesn't get that much attention. We aren't required to think critically, so the, the temptation to be cynical is not as prevalent. We can be lulled into complacency and neglect our minds. It's not until adversity strikes that we realize how fragile our existence is and our minds, they can run wild. So friends, how are you doing in these wild times? Do you have a sober mind? Having instructed Christians to prepare their minds for action and to be sober-minded, Peter gives the command to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Waiting Christians are those that wait in hope. We are to realize that all that we see around us right now is not all that there is. Peter's command to hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that assures us that if we hope fully in anything else, 
we are not fully grasping all that God has done on our behalf. Verse 13 begins with the word, therefore. So Peter is essentially saying, in light of all of the things that have been set up into this point, verses 1 to 12, in light of all those things, therefore set up or set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As waiting Christians, we can lose sight of all that God has done, and we can be tempted to place our hope in other things. So as a quick refresher of all that Peter shows us that God has done for believers, as seen in the first 12 verses of this first chapter, I want to have a little tour back through the 12 verses, a quick refresher of all these things that we've seen, that this therefore is pointing us to. So, so quickly, look, verse 1, we see that God has chosen us. In other words, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian because God sought you out and saved you. In verse 3, we see that God has had great mercy on us and has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 4, we see that God has given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In verse 8, we see that God has given us a belief in Jesus which allows us to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. In verse 9, we see that God has pledged the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And in verse 12, we see that we have this good news that we talked about last week that angels long to look into. So in light of all of these things, therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We as Christians, we can become complacent with our salvation if we believe that all we see is all there is. Peter is telling us that all God has done up until this point is proof that the best is yet to come. So we know intuitively that our hopes are only as reliable as the thing that we're hoping in. For instance, my hope that I'll be a professional golfer is worthless. Because my golf game is completely and totally unreliable. If I'm hoping to be a golfer on my merits, I am hoping in vain. However, if I have placed my hope fully in Christ and all of the promises that have been given through him, there is nothing or no one more reliable that I could be placing my hope in. What has been promised in Christ has been and will be done. That's why Peter commands Christians to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Trinity, what are you setting your hope in? We understand that grace is God's unmerited favor made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So it should come as no surprise to us that the only way that we can fully experience God's grace is in the presence of Christ. It's true that if we have trusted Jesus to make us right with God, we have tasted 
grace. We have received some measure of it. But Peter is telling us that this little appetizer cannot compare with the feast that we are going to enjoy at Christ's return. The future grace that we will know when we see Christ should be the waiting Christian's motivation to wait in hope. We as Christians, we wait in hope, but we're also commanded to wait in holiness. This is point number two, wait in holiness. Look again at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As we wait for the Lord, how are we to live our lives? The second command is to be holy. The word holy has been the recipient of bad press of late, and it's no longer thought to be something desirable. When used today, the word holy tends to be thought of negatively, and it's usually not a compliment to be called a holy roller or to have it said of you that you're holier than thou. But for the Christian, regardless of how unpopular the word is, we are commanded to be holy. Holiness is tied to obedience. We see that in verse 14. So, despite our potential fear of holiness due to its unpopularity, we understand that we can't obey God if we're not seeking to live holy lives. However, if you're anything like me, this command to be holy can seem insurmountable. Like there's no sense in even trying because it seems unattainable. But based on a couple of observations, maybe holiness isn't so unattainable after all. A couple of of observations from the text. If God is issuing a command here through Peter, his expectation is that we can do what he's asking us to do. It would be cruel and unloving for God to ask something of us that we can't do And since God is neither cruel nor unloving, we are fully able by the power of his spirit to obey his command here to be holy. The second is, is similar to the exhortation that we heard from Peter to prepare our minds for action. Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, holiness comes through active obedience through striving and fighting. There's no such thing as passive holiness. As I mentioned earlier, we were in Colorado recently, and um, one morning, Miller, our son, went on a hike by himself. And he came back and reported that he had seen a trout ladder. Uh, And he explained that it was to help the trout get from a lower pool to an upper pool. And and I thought he was either like me, like I often do, just pulling my leg or uh, maybe mistaken. A trout ladder, really? Um, Later that afternoon, we went on the same hike with Miller. And we got to the point in the hike 
where the, the trout ladder was. He, he pointed at it and said, there it is. And uh, the skeptic that I am, I, I looked at it, I surveyed it, and then went around to the side of it and read, and sure enough, it said trout ladder. And um, Some preservation society had installed it to help the trout get from the lower pool to the upper pool of this pond. But listen, as beneficial as a trout ladder can be, the trout still has to exert energy to get from the lower pond to the upper pond, right? There's, there's no trout elevator as far as I know. Maybe, maybe there is, and that would disprove my, my illustration here. But the trout has to strive. He has to fight to make progress. If there's going to be a contrast in your life now as an obedient child to your former ignorance, it's going to be because you fought against being conformed to those old passions. And this is the challenge for the Christian. We are inundated every day by messages of this world. Much of the marketing that is aimed at us is making appeals to the passions of our former ignorance. So waiting as Christians in this world means that we must wait in holiness. Christians, as obedient children, are to look like their heavenly Father. Peter pulls from Leviticus in verses 15 and 16. So real briefly, let's look at Leviticus 11.44, which says, For I am the Lord your God, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And then in Leviticus 18, verses 2 through 4, we hear the Lord say, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord, your God. Holiness is seen in the Christian life when the mind that Peter has spoken of in verse 13 is overseeing actions. And in in his book entitled Holiness... J.C. Ryle says this. I think we've got this on the screen as well. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God according as we find his, his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. He who most entirely agrees with God, he is the most holy man. So we can't exhaustively discuss the topic of holiness this morning, but I will say this. As Christians, we are commanded to be holy. As Christians, we are empowered by the Spirit of God to assist us in pursuing holiness. As waiting Christians, we cannot fit into this world, but we must obey God by following His Spirit in holiness. So please hear me. Please understand, I'm not talking about pursuing salvation, right? We, we only pursue holiness once we've been justified. 
Justification is a free gift from God. We cannot earn it. There is absolutely nothing we can do. But once we've been justified, once we've been saved, we launch off into this life of sanctification, of growing in holiness, of looking more like our Savior. And that's what Peter is getting at here. He's saying, because you are saved, Christians, you must be holy. So waiting Christians must wait in hope. Waiting Christians, they also must be holy. Waiting Christians must fear. And this is our third point, to wait in fear. So look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So living in these uncertain times, you might say, well, I've got the hope and holiness part down, right? But it's, uh, it's the fearing that I'm struggling with, the fearing God, the trusting in God. The distinction here, though, is that the fear commanded of waiting Christians is a holy and reverential awe of God, one that trusts Him, one that says, I can fear you because I trust you. It's not fearing other things in this world. It's looking to God, casting your eyes upon God, fearing Him and knowing that He is the one that will lead us through. Back in verse 14, Peter refers to Christians as obedient children. Here he references their connection to their heavenly Father who judges impartially. And this is one of the reasons that we are to fear God, because He judges. So living in reverence and awe of God, it prevents a Christian from making light of their sin and presuming upon God's goodness. We conduct ourselves in fear precisely because we realize God the Father judges. Jesus' substitutionary death on behalf of those who trust in him for salvation means that God will see us as righteous because of Christ. But that doesn't mean that we ignore our sin. If you'll remember back to our series in Ecclesiastes, we heard this. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. The command to fear God is clearly connected to the command to be holy. Those who live in obedience to God are those that fear God, and and those who fear God are those who live in obedience to God. Peter's reference to a Christian's time in exile underscores the theme of waiting that we see in 1 Peter. So when tempted to fear your circumstances, fear God. God, waiting Christians must hope fully in Christ. Waiting Christians must be holy 
And waiting Christians must fear God. Why? Why can't we have our best life now? What are we waiting on? Peter's already alluded to it in verse 13, but he returns to the idea in verses 18 to 21 and provides more explanation. So here's our fourth and final point. Jesus is worth the wait. Look at verse 18 once more. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So the reason we as Christians are not overcome by our circumstances is this. God has clearly spoken to us in Scripture. Verse 18 assures us that we don't have to wait in uncertainty. The text says we wait in certainty because we know that we were ransomed. God has liberated Christians from the bondage of sin. And how did he do it? With the precious blood of Christ. Peter's words are filled with hope because they go against much of what we believe about sin. While it's true there are consequences to our sin, the idea of generational curses is blasted here by Peter when he says that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Look, in Christ, we don't have to be held captive by the sins that crippled former generations. Being ransomed in Christ makes the commands in verses 13 to 17 possible. It means that we can hope fully in Christ. We can be holy and we can rightly fear God. Circumstances will tempt you to doubt God's estimation of you, but Scripture will assure you of how much He values those that He's redeemed. How were we ransomed? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So you're probably already tired of Colorado, but one more illustration from Colorado. On our way home, uh, we, were, we were traveling between Breckenridge and, um, and Denver, and we were traveling through Argo, Colorado, site of the Argo Gold Mill. No doubt if you've ever been to Dem- from Denver to Breckenridge, you've seen it on the right, this big, red, ghastly metal structure. Uh, supposedly it's where the gold rush began. I don't know if that's the gold rush in Colorado or, or all of the gold rush, but it's a pretty significant piece of history. So we'd seen that you could pan for gold there, and we thought, why not? You know, it's one thing to pan for gold in Dahlonega. It's something altogether different to pan for gold in Colorado, right? So at the minor leagues versus the bigs, and, and we decided to, uh, to take our chances in Colorado. So we pulled off the, the interstate. We paid our $14 for Hadley, Aaron, and Miller, and they went to town panning for gold. And toward the end of our experience, our instructor asked what we thought the gold flakes were worth. Each one of them netted about three gold flakes. Amazing how that happens. Um, but she asked what we thought they were wor- worth. And joking, I said thousands. 
And she was very serious, and, and she replied to me, nope, you're looking at about $11 worth of gold. Um, and I'm really shocked that they tell you that, right? It, it would probably be better to let you think that you've got like $5,000 worth of gold, uh, even though you paid fourteen. But, um, but she said, you've got $11 worth of gold. And I realize these people have to net a profit, right? But we didn't even net in our hall. We didn't make up what we spent uh, for our experience. What does that tell us about gold? There's a limit to its value. It's perishable. And, and its worth can rise or fall based on the whims of the world. Not so with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus' worth is immeasurable. It does not fluctuate. It is the standard by which all else is compared. And everything else pales in comparison. This blood, the blood of Christ, is what God the Father has ransomed believers with. We are ransomed by the death of Christ. But Peter goes on to show how before that, the birth and life of Christ Jesus would be our guarantee that our circumstances shouldn't be how we assess our lives. So why did Jesus come? Look at the end of verse 20. For the sake of you. For the sake of you. Jesus came to rescue sinners. He came for our sake. Through the life of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, and according to verse 21, the resurrection of Jesus, we are reminded to overlook our circumstances in life if they tempt us to doubt God. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are what generate our faith and hope in God. So, if you're here this morning... And you've never bowed your knee to King Jesus. If you've not surrendered your life to him, repenting of your sin and believing on him alone for the forgiveness of your sin, I invite you to do that this morning. You can think of no greater joy than to know that someone else has placed their faith in Christ Jesus. So again, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, do not delay. Call on Him today. Friends, if you are here and you're trusting in Christ, but life's circumstances have you down, I want to encourage you to look again this week at Scripture. Look at 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21, and, and see that Peter is calling us to wait in hope, to wait in holiness, and to wait in fear. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that we've been called to wait in hope, to wait in holiness, and to wait in fear precisely because Jesus is worth it. Because you think so highly of your Son. Because His blood is so precious 
and it's worth immeasurable. We get some glimpse of how much you love us and care for us. May we not take that for granted. Father, may we leave this place today celebrating what Christ has accomplished for us. And may that be what encourages us to wait. When circumstances are dictating that we sell out or that we cash in 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 fear, when we're tempted to walk away from the Savior, may we hear these words from Peter. May we be reminded to wait because Jesus is worth it. As we come to the table now in remembrance of the one who laid down his life for sinful rebels like me, the spotless Lamb of God who knew no sin, innocent, guiltless, blameless, he himself took our sin upon himself and went to the cross dying the death that we deserve so that we might have eternal life. So that we might taste grace now and look forward to the amazing grace we're going to get to experience when we see him face to face. As we gather around this table, may we be reminded of your love for us, of your son's love for us, and of the spirit who empowers us now, his love for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.